Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Shindig, a podcast about archaeology brought to you by the Red River Archaeology Group. I'm your host, Tom Horn, and today we've got a really brilliant podcast for you. It's with the Viking Dublin Dogs team. We, like I've Neolithic and Bronze Age dogs from various caves in Ireland, and then we have these commercial dogs from Viking Age and, and the Iron Age as well, and uh, medieval times. They are discussing the amazing work they're doing. They're looking at early medieval and Viking Age dogs, wolves, horses. Uh, you also have to um, have some sort of like stabling for it if you're of a certain uh, if you're of a certain status, uh, because of course Irish early medieval um, society is so heavily stratified that everybody knows their place in it. All the things that people think are cool or interested with from time immemorial, they're talking about it and their amazing project to discover DNA links, to discover trade of these animals, discover movements, discover their 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 use in human settlements, the human-animal interactions with them. At what point did dogs that were already in Ireland and then dogs that presumably came in from a place like Scandinavia, do they, do they start to breed? They are currently fundraising to raise money for more radiocarbon dates, and they're wanting to expand the project so it's not only Ireland and Britain, but will include Scandinavia as well. So it's really going to change the way we look at a really important period in terms of these human-animal in interactions, and also just the way we look at dogs and wolves and horses, which were so important at the time, and even to this day, are vital to the way that we live our lives. So, enjoy. So, hi guys, thanks so much for joining us today from the Viking Dublin Dogs project. Um, but it's kind of more than just dogs, as, as we would certainly understand it today. So. Perhaps we can just start off by getting a sort of brief introduction to the project and maybe a little bit about the, the fundraising campaign that you're you're currently uh, undertaking. Yeah, sure. Um well well, first of all, Tom, thanks very much for having us. Um it's it's a delight to be on the Shindig. And uh, hopefully the next hour or half hour will go smoothly. <laughs> but um yeah, like the the whole project kind of was was an interesting one that born out of Twitter basically. Social media gave us its birth. Um, it started with uh, me posting uh, a tweet on you know using a mandible or lower jaw, a lar very large type dog from Chancery Lane, uh, site in Dublin, city in Ireland, and uh, it's a Viking Age medieval uh, site on the River Poddle. And um, yeah, it just kind of caught basically some researchers out there, caught, caught their airwaves and they were interested and started reaching out. And so we just formed um, the, the researcher pack with various different areas of expertise covered to make it as multidisciplinary and as integrated as much as possible. So I'm the PI on the project. I'm a part-time research scientist in the School of Archaeology in UCD, and I'm also a commercial zoo archaeologist as well. So it's a kind of a hybrid between the commercial and the academic sectors, so I can see both sides quite well, which is good. And uh, 
you know, it's been on my mind for a while, a few years anyway, the, the different types of dogs. I've been collecting dogs from various commercial elements and other research elements I've been working on. So um, we like I've Neolithic and Bronze Age dogs from various caves in Ireland. And then we have these commercial dogs from Viking Age and, and uh, Iron Age as well and uh, medieval times. But yeah, like what, what was interesting with the dogs is where we have different commercial sites, there's also the presence of horses. And, you know, horses and Vikings and dogs and Viking Viking people go hand in hand as well as medieval societies. And there was an interesting relationship going with what were those roles both within the cities, but also in the hinterland or the countryside outside the cities across Ireland. And then this was extended after I named everything Viking Dublin Dogs, more and more sites in Ireland that I was working on cropped up. So it's not just Dublin. So eventually the Dublin will be dropped. Uh, you know, the domain name will be changed in the future once it runs its course. But um, then, of course, there was like dogs and horses and then dogs and horses in Britain as well. And I'm in negotiations with some Scandinavian ones at, at the moment. So it has kind of broadened a bit but it's the human animal at the heart of it is the human animal relationships and what their roles in these societies were so like mary is a historian she'll introduce herself now shortly and she specializes in irish viking age and medieval societies and so on and rena uh, who's a expert in the in the archaeology of horses and riding and so on. So it's a, and there's other members of the research pack. So it's a huge blend of different um, research elements as well as skill sets and so on to make, you know, how can we discover the stories of where they wolves, where they're dogs, and then the dogs and horses relationships, and then those relationships with people and so on through time. So it's a bit of a mishmash and a bit of a large project, but we should uh, get some really interesting results by the combination of different scientific cutting edge techniques at the end of it. So, And I, I mean, you've already outlasted Twitter, so you're... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, which is interesting. <laughs> but it's really... It's really... Mastodon as well. Yeah, yeah, well... I think I think this is the thing. I think I mean I think a lot of us, including in this conversation, know each other through Twitter or you know various mm -hmm. social media things. And I think when you're in the sort of subjects that that we are in, I'm a sort of Viking Age archaeologist myself. The sort of more niche ones that it's it's really valuable tool for us to reach out and 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 talk to and know other people before you mm -hmm. ever meet them. And in the world that we've been in the last few years, it's increasingly difficult to to, to, to travel. And then the expenses have gone up since then. So I think a project coming out of social media is very much of its time in 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 in, in the best possible way. But mm -hmm. I'll 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 we'll cut we'll we'll come back to you know the brilliant work you guys do online and on social mm -hmm. media all sort of independently and, and as a group. But um, as Ruth alluded to there, I think we'll we'll go around the group and, and just introduce you guys briefly, and we'll 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 we'll, we'll start with uh, Mary just to have a, a wee introduction to you know how you got interested in this 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 area of the 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 the, the topic that that we're going to be talking about today with the the dogs and the wolves and the uh, and the horses. Um, okay, um, Mary Valenti, I 
teach history at Appalachian State University in um, North Carolina in the U.S. Um, interest in dogs is pretty much because of his project. I, I research, obviously, Viking Age, especially Dublin Vikings in towns. Um, I've been looking at women's history recently. So it, this has been so interesting. I mean, one of the things that really struck me is how little has been written about them. Well, we've had scads about cats. I mean, I think, you know, they had a poet with Pangarvan. And, and so they, they had some good PR from, from a few centuries back. But I'm really surprised that, you know, the dogs, obviously, Fergus Kelly and other scholars, but there's very little written specifically on dogs in the early Middle Ages in Ireland. So this is a wide open field. This is great stuff you're doing. And yeah, I mean, it, it's a it's a, a topic that, yeah, as you say, it's one of these ones, I think the best topics are that in, in history and archaeology, the ones you think, why has nobody done this before? And then you'll be doing all your research and say someone must have done this in the past. But, you know, that the, often the thing with, with really good ideas like this is that, is that nobody has thought of them so um and i i know your work very much from from my work in in viking uh dublin as well so it's a privilege to to talk to you all today and, and and to mary i can remember referencing your 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 work a lot in in in, in my thesis in my book as well so hopefully I, I love the book and i'm really excited to finally meet you other than on social media Thank you. And when well, talking about social media, Raina's, I, I, this is, uh, we're moving on to uh, horses now, and, and and somebody whom I know uh, entirely through Twitter, I think, um, our past didn't quite cross the uh, govern, but hopefully you'll be back because we've got some lovely horses that we'll talk about in the govern stones in a minute. But just um, be before I sort of uh, fanboy over the the govern stones and, and the horses on that, can you tell us a little bit more about your research and your background and how you got into this project? Um, I am an archaeologist. Uh, my special uh, side is um, uh, horses and Lauren Ray. Lauren Ray being all the tiny little metal bits that go into to bridles and pieces of saddles and God knows what. Um, I'm very much into metal analysis as well. Um, and um, also uh, most people would know me from Iron Age more than anything. Um, but... Uh, Ruth sort of made me an offer I couldn't refuse on this one, saying, oh, you know, would you be interested in um, looking at the Viking horses? And the thing is, because, of course, so much of the Viking period is uh, at that stage for them, it's still very much on the junction of the Iron Age in many ways, the Scandinavian Iron Age. So they still have an awful lot right through until quite late on, they've got a lot of um, hangovers of a pagan past, for want of a better word, and how they treat the horse and how they behave with the horse at that stage. And that is something I'm very interested in, as anybody who's had the misfortune of having to read um, my first book um, will know that it's something that I'm very, very interested in because there's parallels with Germanic equitation and Irish equitation. Um, and uh, so, yeah, while I am actually technically doing um, a postdoc funded by IRC on weaponry and um, all sorts of lovely things in the Iron Age, I thought, yeah, I could sneak in a bit about 
horse's hair, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, and it's a, it's a learning curve as well, you know. And uh, I'm learning from Ruth, I'm learning from Mary, I'm learning from all of the team. So it's great. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the thing. The website's brilliant. We'll get all the addresses out to you when, when we, we do the promotion for this, and we'll, we'll say them at the end as well. But you can go and you can see there's lots of researchers involved in this project. I think it's one of its strengths, and in my opinion, is you've got just this wealth of talent, and you, you, you're you adding people, not all the time, but you're adding people as and when they presumably they approach the project or you approach them. So it's real. I just kept on scrolling. I was doing my research earlier, and I thought, <laughs> "This is this is a lot of people." But it's and you recognise lots of the names, and you're thought, "This is this is all the talents." And again, this is an advantage we can take out of um, social media and the fact is, you know, we this point, you know, this point one percent of the world that's interested still hundreds of millions of people in archaeology, but we can all find each other online and. I think that's to say the brilliant thing about it is you, you do so much on, on on all your social media panels and your website's great as well. And we'll talk more about that later. But I think now the listeners are probably going to want to hear more about the the wonderful uh, dogs and, and wolves and and uh, horses of of the early medieval Viking Age period. And I come to this through um, the Gun Stones, which is remarkable collection of sort of 9th, 10th, maybe early 11th century carved stones from a Britonics of an old Welsh-speaking kingdom that was in sort of southwest Scotland, the sort of Strathclyde Valley, the Clyde Valley in, in, into Cumbria. And they produced these amazing carved stones. There's the famous hogbacks, but there's also standing crosses and the amazing govern sarcophagus. And the govern sarcophagus is noticeable for being pretty much unique for what it is. It's a huge stone casket, probably from the late 9th century, possibly from a Pictish king who's killed by Vikings. So it ticks all the boxes. But we think he's depicted on the side panel of this, and he's on this magnificent horse. And I think I think uh, and I sort of first um, met, as it were, on Twitter, discussing the, the gait or the way this horse was moving. Or, or, or I'm actually stand. going to believe it or not, there's a conference being run in October online. Um, and I'm going to be talking about that and other horses. Ah, fantastic. So, well, it's, it's it's a good horse because, believe me, Govan Stones has some terrible horses, some horses that are maybe donkeys or, or not, we, we can, or some fantastical creatures. But the horse on that, that's somebody who has yeah. seen a horse and can and can use a chisel. And it's a great horse, and we can maybe talk about this some, some other time. But it's a hunting scene as well, and this is what brings in the... The dogs in it. There's a dog. There's a stag. There's this beautiful horse, and um, there's also, I think, a, a wolf on another panel as well. It seems to be crushed by a sort of lamb of God, and it's next to a sort of rather jolly looking snake that's also getting crushed. So we know animals are really, really important in the early medieval world in a way that we wouldn't really maybe understand now. I mean, they're they're everywhere in the Gum Stones. There's snakes. There's horses. There's dogs. There's um, there's fantastical creatures. There's quadrupeds of all sorts everywhere. And if we're talking about the Viking Age, we often think of things like the Great Army. And the first thing the Great Army do um, when they go to England is they 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 sort of it's not borrow is the right word. They ask kindly for some horses, and the East Anglians give them lots of horses. And if we think of the Vikings traveling around, it's not longships all the time. A lot of the time, they're moving on horses, and they're presumably got guard dogs and hunting dogs as well so they're 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 these horses and, and and wolves and dogs are really sort of 
venerated high status animals that appear in 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 art whether that's metalworking or 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 carved stone so i think i'd like to go and ask you now just for the readers get an idea of just how important dogs wolves and horses were to not only scandinavian vikings but just to sort of early medieval peoples in 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 general um i haven't seen the stone you're talking about, the sarcophagus. Is there a falcon or other bird on there? Um, there are no birds on it, but the top panel, the the lid essentially is missing. So um there aren't birds on that scene at all. But um what it looks like is uh we'll we'll, we'll give out this image for the YouTube version of, of this talk, but it's a stag with what looks like a hunting dog. And what was probably this this Constantine, this king saint on a on on a horse. Is Scandinavian stones, several of them depict hunts like that, but they usually have the bird of prey in there as well. And there's at least one of the burials from Copang. Um it's a it's at least a, I think it's a cremation burial, so not everything is there, but they they're the excavators were connecting um hunting um and hunting dogs with falcons which apparently were used in scandinavia pretty early i haven't actually looked into this yet for ireland but they seem to be pretty well connected so it'd be interesting to see if that's something else they brought with them or if that's just different i mean bayou tapestry is 11th century so when they show falcons as well along with the it's it's a different thing so anyway uh, that's interesting because in <clears throat> Chancery Lane, the assemblage um, at the Viking Age levels, there were bones from golden eagles and gossocks. Ah, and the gossocks were, you would definitely have as a... Yeah, and there were females. Excellent. So the, the measurements matched out with the females rather than the males. So they could have been breeding them as well, but also the, the females are bigger than the males, so therefore maybe better hunting. So is this is this breaking news that it's now going to be uh, dogs, <laughs> wolves, horses, and birds? Uh, it could be. <laughs> is, is this the part where I bring up foxes? Um, <laughs> now, there's a story in one of the lives of Bridget about a trained fox that a king had that did tricks. It's the same life. It comes with all the caveats and all that, but it's interesting that it's in there. Mm. And the miracle comes when somebody thinks it's a, a wild fox and kills it, and the king gets very upset. And so Bridget miraculously brings in a wild fox, but it can do all the same tricks so the king doesn't get mad and, and punish the, the man who killed the fox. But yeah, yeah I but think it's a charming story. Well, that's uh, yeah, so, yeah. I begin. Oh, yeah, we all seem to come back. They're they're sort of. I imagine just the costs involved in keeping these particular sorts of animals and training them and breeding them again. That reinforces, including we'll talk about horses now, Adriana. That reinforces their elite status because it's just expensive to 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 keep these and to you know give give them a keep them healthy. Is that is that would that be correct? I mean, you need a landscape to keep a horse in. You need to have the knowledge for its welfare. Um, and you have to have places, for example, an old Irish text that states that uh, there has to be um, 
like hobbles. You have to keep your horse in a certain place. Um, uh, you also have to um, have some sort of like stabling for it if you're of a certain uh, if you're of a certain status, uh, because of course Irish early medieval um, society is so heavily stratified that everybody knows their place in it, and everybody has to keep to the law that their class is supposed to uh, adhere to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you still, you need a landscape, you need the ability to train, you need to have the technology to make what, um, or the wherewithal to buy um, what uh, uh, you uh, you need um, for it. Um, so, you know, yeah, it is an elite statement in many ways. We also need to be able to feed it in a in a busy yeah. urban environment. So you know, you're do you actually rely on things coming from outside? And then what happens during times of crop failure and famine? And we can discuss what happens to some dogs in in the in the cities. And there's a dog incoming at the moment. Yeah. So. And of course, horses like dogs have different purposes. Mm. So if there's herding dogs and guard dogs and oh, cute dogs that we love as pets. Back to the dog for the listeners on the podcast. So if you're not watching on uh, uh, Twitter, we're, we're, the doggos will appear. It's <laughs> <laughs> at the moment. Um, and but horses would have been, you know, for riding and for hunting as for very very wealthy people. But there's also plenty of descriptions of what are effectively pack horses. Yeah, you have yeah. to feed them, mm. but they're not trained the same way. They're not the same association with the elite because they were pack horses. But you still had to be able to feed I them. Mm. I mean, that's one of the interesting things I think from some of the uh, teeth that we've examined to date, or um, is that on. Not all of them have tooth wear. Obviously, if there's a metal bit in a horse's mouth, uh, you're going to get wear upon teeth. Um, instead, I have a funny feeling uh, that uh, you're going to be dealing with quite a lot of uh, pack horses, which are used in more like halters. And probably also made of straw. Um, if anybody's at Exarch, I'm going to be presenting a paper on this actually in two weeks' time. And I've been busy weaving the bloody straw together to make one, um, <laughs> so as I can try it out. Um, but you're you're dealing with um, a lower grade, a, a commercial uh, side of equitation rather than the Lord riding out with his falcon and his hounds. So there's. One's mercantile and one's... And the Zoark evidence backs that up to a certain extent where you have no evidence of bit wear on the yeah. teeth, but also from the measurements of the bones, the long bones, the estimation of withers heights, they're quite a small, as I've discussed this with Rena a, a good few months ago, if not a year ago, with the Chancery Lane horses, that they're actually coming out as being more or less the same size as the hobby or the Hobner horse, which is was about 11 hands or so, 11, 12. Um, the, the, they say that the hobby uh, could range anywhere from about 11 hands through to actually as big as 14. 
Mm. Um, the jury is out on that one. Um, it's a bit of my holy grail. I mean, sort of it's Rena McGuire and the quest for the Irish hobby. Um, and the fact that uh, this is like my Indiana Jones moment, you know. Um, uh, always actually looking for this. And my friend Miriam, um, she is uh, always looking for the Galloway, which I think is actually probably the same animal. Just in two different places. There is a missile link that's the cushion doll pony, which looks remarkably like the Eriske. As you know, the Eriske is actually quite um it's got quite a lot of longevity of of breeding line and it's still relatively pu- pure, whatever that means. Um, but they've kept it like the Icelandic ponies. And I think that when you're looking at that kind of small animal, you're talking about either reconnaissance which, of course, the hobby was supposed to be brilliant for because it was fast and clever, or else you're dealing with, as Ruth says, pack animals. Um, that's one of the things that we are going to be looking at quite intensely. And, um, I mean, I could talk about horses uh, all day as well, but now I'm thinking, again, back to that hunting scene, and unfortunately, the, the one animal in the hunting scene that's damaged is the sort of head of the dog. So <laughs> any attempt to sort of guess what type of dog it is, I think it's obviously meant to be a big dog. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if maybe you can tell me a bit and tell the the the, the viewers and, and the listeners a bit about the sort of human-animal relationships with, with dogs and the different types of dogs that they kept and, you know, how different are they to wolves at this stage? Just a little bit so people can sort of place when we're talking about early medieval dogs what kind of types we're talking about and how big they were and yeah their characteristics and their relationships with their with their owners i'll deal with the zoark evidence of mary takes the types <laughs> i mean it's interesting scandinavia and i'm just starting to look at this seems to have a fairly lengthy list of different things that dogs did but where the line is between what a dog did and what type of dog it is is something obviously a project like this might help figure out. There's obvious, there were lap dogs. These were pets, there's a little, these were teeth. Um, both Scandinavia and Britain and Ireland, so that's three, not both, um, like to talk about the guard dogs. I love the fact that in Old Irish, it's literally called a slaughterhound, the Arhu. I mean, that is just fantastic. Um, and. The implication is that these are pretty big. And both of those seem to have been imported to Britain right at the end of the Roman era. Um, And that before that, something in the middle where there were herding and hunting dogs, how different would they have been? I mean, this is where I really love this project because, you know, are they already being trained and bred separately? one more for speed and one for, you know, because they would have different needs. Um, or, so, were they um, more or less the same dogs? It's a difference in training. And this kind of project can really help figure that out. Yeah, and I I, I think that's, you know, where, yeah, where, where we sort of think, okay, you know, because we've got the artistic descriptions, we've got the, the descriptions, the literary descriptions, that you're you're talking about there, but we also find them actually. What sort of context we're talking? I think I'd like to talk about the the the, the Zoark material now. What what sort of context are you finding them in? 
what sort of you know, you sort of injuries have they had in life? You know, have they healed or not? Have they been looked after? I suppose uh, have they been cared for? Do they get old? I suppose are they worked to death quite young? That's the kind of question I suppose I'd I'd like to ask. Maybe it's at Ruth. Um, well, <laughs> where do I start? Um, there's so so much in that, but um, I've just dug out a few bones. So for the YouTube visit uh, viewers, they'll they'll get to see them, but we can I can give you photographs for the, the Twitter and stuff. But um in terms of sizes, first of all, yes, we have the the small uh kind of bowed boned uh dog bones. So they're usually the laptop small dogs. So they're generally less than 30 centimeters high at the withers, and some of them go as low as 18 centimeters, so very small. So terrier type or dash hound type-ish thing, who knows? Um, and then we have this kind of medium type, which is generally between 30 and 50 centimeters standing at the shoulder. And then 50 plus is where we have the larger type dogs, estimates that. And they're from the long bones. So we have like, you know, th this is a scapula bone, um, which is basically the size of my hands. So this is a large type dog. And uh, the Chancery Lane dogs are actually a good mixture of sizes. We've the small lap dogs, we've medium dogs, we've large dogs, and then extra large dogs. And whether those extra large ones are indeed purely dog or mixture of wolf hybrids in them remains to be seen. It will come out in the project with the ancient DNA evidence. But um, what we are finding, like what, what I've seen on all the dog bones that I've looked at from various sites, there's a mixture of diseases appearing on the bones. So osteoarthritis, which generally happens with wear and tear as the animal ages. We have worn down teeth and cavities in the teeth, but the dog is still alive while this is going on. So again, reaching older age, we have puppies, puppy bones on site so they obviously have male or, or male and female breeding animals on site and evidence of a special bone in male dogs male carnivores have this special bone in the in the penis it's a penis bone the baculum so that's been found as well um and then you know some of those younger dog bones have um cut marks on them um now whether they were skinned for their pelts at various stages or whether they were eaten during times of famine in, in the city centers where they wouldn't have been, you know, they wouldn't have been um, exposed to getting in new crops and new fruit food from the outside countryside where everything is more or less brought in. And then therefore, what do you eat? And if there's a lot of dogs around, you might actually rely on them. But like some some of the some of the bones also show broken bones that have healed quite dramatically broken bones where I, I don't have a hand, but basically you have a, a humerus, a front leg bone, where you have the shaft coming down and then you have this break in it and it's been healed on the side. So that dog would have been cared for, would have been fed and looked after, and it survived that to actually heal the bone. Now it would have walked with a limp for the rest of its life, but it just shows you that, and, and that was a large type dog. So maybe kept because it was useful for a guard, guard dog or, you know, something of that fashion and still useful in that regard and therefore cared for and then shows the human dog companionship as well as the caring element within that society. So there's 
there's lots of like, you know, with the bone measurements and then we'll be using 3D digitizing of, of the skulls, the teeth and the the bones themselves, the long bones, we'll be able to track patterns of change through time and male and female differences. And then we might get into a sort of, well, are all the small dogs kind of the same and are the medium kind of the same? And is there something going on with the extra large or the large dogs? And not only for Ireland we'll be doing this, hopefully we'll do the same level of measurement. We'll have the, the actual measurements, but this kind of 3D digitizing as well for um for dogs from York in England and uh, Westo, Ipswich. Oh, I've forgotten two sites. <laughs> but anyway, they're on the website. But but like yeah, you know, the we have comparison between different um locations within the urban sites and uh, as opposed to outside the urban sites where where they the same in the countryside or the where the mainly kind of farm animals you know herding dogs and guard dogs or where they laptops or lap lap dogs do we find them out in the countryside as well like you know so we we can gain a hell of a lot from the bones and of course the ancient dna the radiocarbon dating the isotope analysis will all come from the bones and the teeth as well so and that's the, the amazing scientific stuff and the, i mean you can just imagine you know the, the the connections that you guys are going to be built with the ancient dna maybe you will see something about trade of animals and that yeah. i know some people are, are doing work on you know the movement of animals over yeah. Yeah. overseas and i suppose now it leads on to me to think about you know that that's the sort of the the, the bones and i'm thinking now more of the the context so i'd like to ask you guys about you know the sort of famous sort of Viking Age, early medieval burials where people are buried with with their with their dogs and and their horses, sometimes more than one horse. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose the question really is: um, we'll start with many in the in arena. We'll talk about the the horses. We'll talk about more generally just about the historical and the sort of the the, the context of these sort of sacrificial uh, burials and what that tells us about their importance in life and and also in the the afterlife if you just maybe like to tell us a wee bit about that i think what's i mean what i find interesting is the fact especially with the scandinavian peoples is that there's several different layers of sacrifice um you've got obviously the blood the bloodbath where they want arterial blood everywhere and that involves dogs and horses and god knows what and we don't know if that's going on in in Ireland or not, we have no. I, I don't know anyway. Um, I defer to other people's knowledge whether there's ever been any uh, evidence of that kind of uh, thing found in in Ireland. Um, we have, sorry, I'd, for, I'd forgotten about it when I was doing the Twitter, but in Clochmore Cave, where there are so many individuals and they're clearly pagan, clearly Viking Age, a lot of it is cremation, but there are animal bones mixed in there. So we don't know all that. I have to go back and reread all of it. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things driving around, you know, running errands, thinking, why did I forget about this? <laughs> um, so, and, and then, of course, you've got the the smaller burials and the fact that you've got, obviously, horses and dogs. And 
you know, I've noticed that there was some stuff put up recently about the syndicated care and love. Um, I'm not so sure about that because you don't tend to chop a dog in two uh, whenever you're about to chuck it under a grave and say, I loved you. But, and I mean, again, the whole Evan Fadlin thing where they ran the horses into a lather and then chopped them up and flung them into the, the, uh, the boat before it went up in flames. And we've got one of those in Scotland, obviously. I was uh, Whithorn, I think it is, where there's a potential of human and animal sacrifice uh, connected with burial ritual. And then, of course, you've got the, the Isle of Man, which could also be potential. Um, the jury's out about Ireland. We only have one that I know of for certain. And I don't know if any horse bones were ever found with it because I have no knowledge of it. And that's the one in County Meath, um, outside Navan. Now, granted, the um, uh, the material goods, the bridal connectors, are very similar to that which you see in Norway. Um, and there's parts of it that might be of a cart of some sort. Um, but as for anything... But nobody has ever said that there were actual bone bones found with it. Maybe they were cremated. It's an antiquarian find. We have no idea. But I think Mary and myself were talking about the archaeology of emotions as to what these animals would have meant. Um, I think it's probably in a lot of the cases, a status symbol, um, like going on your Lamborghini, um, you know, being buried with it. Um, but I'm pretty sure it's like everywhere. There's some people who will want that psychopomp, that guardian to take you into the nether regions um, with you and with dogs and horses. And, of course, they're the two animals that are used from oh, even before Hallstatt um, to actually act as the creatures that issue you into the new world. And there's so much mythology caught up with that as well. Um, so, I mean, that's a, very much the sort of stuff that I'm interested in um, examining in particular. Um, so I would say that from my point of view, looking further afield than just Ireland, you've got a mixture of gruesome potlatch. We're doing this because we can afford to. Um, and people possibly who were genuinely... Uh, adored their animals. It's like anywhere. That's it. Mary, is there anything that you want to 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 add to that in a in a wider context as well? Yeah, I mean there's just so much to look at. And in turn, I mean clearly people had pets they named them. You know, we we know this. They're affectionate. There's again in Kilkine, only because that's where I've had a chance to go back and look. Um one of the burials it wasn't excavated in the, the round that Dagman did, but it's reported in, the, in the, the first huge volume. So I've got a picture, it was a boat burial, and there's a horse, and there's three adult humans, and one of the women is seated, and she had, now this is because it was an older excavation, the only thing they can say is there are smaller bones in her lap that may have been an infant, but may have been a lap dog. And it's a, there's a big difference between the two and the implications of what they could mean. Um, and, of course, smaller bones would be, you know, of a, a smaller dog. We're going to find fewer of. But 
interesting that there is that possibility where the horse was almost certainly sacrificed as a sacrifice. There's a dog's head in there almost clearly sacrificed. It's on top of a cauldron. But the other one, if it's there, it's not, you know, a woman who child died in childbirth or something like that, or she and an infant died of a disease together, um, that may be a lap dog. So, you know, finding animals in even a single grave could mean different things. And of course, there's other pieces of animals. You've got the whole animals, but you've got the bone combs and you know, things that are made out of animals that are going to show up in graves as well. Last thing thinking I've done, uh, I've been very privileged to do some digging at, at, at Repton and the sort of the parts of animals in there, the famous boar's tusk between the legs of the unfortunate uh, uh, gentleman. And there's the sheep's jaw that was next to the sacrifice children, which looks like next to the the, the, the mass grave as well. So, I mean, to <laughs> let you know too much about the Viking Age and, and this burial practice, read about it. It's fascinating, but it's, it can be horrifying, confusing <laughs> as well. Um, I'd love yeah. to find out if there's, and again, this project has so much to offer. Was there a difference between what we're more likely to find at an urban grave versus a rural rural site. Mm-hmm. So. And that, 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 leads, that leads me on yet with with you know your great work on on Dublin and, and you know we've all got an interest in, in Dublin and, and York and these sort of big bigger sort of trading sites and 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 towns and um you're talking there about the differences. So you know perhaps you're more likely to get import imported dogs if there is a trading dogs and horses. That's more likely, obviously, to be at the sort of the, the trading centers, whether that's a beach market or whether that's a, a major sort of nodal trading point like like a, like a Dublin or a York or a Kaupang or a Hedebu, um or, or or that. So I suppose then that, that that's making me think then if we're talking about this difference, if we're going to let, let's look at now at maybe the evidence that you might get or be looking at at, at say Dublin for and York. Um, will you be looking at the sort of ancient DNA, that's ADNA for, for people who, you know, wondering what that means, might tell you about the importation of animals? Because I know there's been research done uh, recently, like Lothleman et al. Um, and, and they're looking at the Great Army and the Heathwood uh, burials, um, uh, which is a cremation ceremony for, for people who don't know, who's just just down the, 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 the river from uh, Repton. Um, but they've found uh, bones there um, from animals and they, they can manage to extract DNA from them and they seem to be imported. So is that something, um, yes, say more likely at urban sites, you might be able to sort of look into as part of the research project? And I, I think Ruth maybe has, has some thoughts on this. Yeah, it is It is on the list. <laughs> um, <laughs> with, with the ancient DNA, we're... we're we're collaborating with Pontus Scotland in the Francis Crick Institute. So he's him and his lab are doing um, full genomics. So it's the entire sequence of each dog. So it lets us have a deeper dive into these relationships and relationships through time and paralocation. And then coupled with the strontium isotopes which lets you have um insight into origins as well and traveling and migration um isotopes with, with carbon and nitrogen like what they eat and what they drink are they eating and drinking the same thing 
from the same location or are they, you know, with the imports, they'll have a different signature. So by building up complementary um, scientific techniques and, and analysis, we'll be able to actually get a more rounded and fuller picture of what's going on rather than, say, looking at, I don't know, mitochondrial DNA and, and that's it. Like you only see one part of the story. You don't see all of the story. So with, with the full genomics, it does take three years once they get their samples. We will be able to get quite quickly the gender of each dog, you know, male and female. Um, so that will actually help us with the isotopic analysis as well. So there will be different phases of results coming in and they'll be written up in different phases. But then at the end, there'll be a few synthesis uh, papers drawing all the, the data together. So coupled with then the size and shape, morphology differences in the bones and the teeth, we'll be able to then track again changes like are the ad adaptations to, you know, uh, the sizes to a certain extent outside or inside urban centers or trading and you know again linking in trading patterns associated with different sites and you know within countries between countries so it's kind of like one of those things where we're asking questions but there's going to be more questions coming out of the data that we find and get results on through time and so the project will build and build and build as it goes so it's like opening up a can of worms. We we know the kind of high level kind of questions and like, you know, the, 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 you know, basically what's on the website. But then after that, they'll be drilled down even further and then linkages between the different lines of evidence and the threads of the results and so on. So that's great. And I suppose that, yeah. I suppose the same question then to 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 Mary and sort of Rina from a historical or the is it easy to import horses? I suspect it's possibly not. So just anything we've got in any of the the, the law codes or anything that's that was mentioned about moving you know, hunting dogs or or, or dogs or, or horses around and and then maybe the practicalities of it. If, if you guys have anything you'd like to add to to what Ruth just said, I mean there really? is a mention of importing horses, but I I've always assumed they were kind of smaller pony sized pack animals from whales. Um, at well, at one stage, kind of before the Viking Age, so there's there's mentions of that. The dogs had to come from somewhere. Um, same with cats. So, did they come? You know, like these really small lap dogs and the really big guard dogs. Did they come from Britain after the you know towards the end of the Roman Age? Did they come from France? Um, which is not impossible. Um, they're listed in earlier sources that predate the Viking Age. So it suggests they were there already. Um, but if Vikings brought their own dogs, which is not at all impossible, um, because obviously they got sheep and everything else off to Iceland. So they got them to Iceland, they could get them to Ireland. You know, was there a, a big wave, say, around the time of Canute? When so many other things we know from Scandinavia the Orders, kind of a revitalizing of connections with Scandinavia at that point. Um, there's just so many things that, that hopefully this project will be able to, to shed some light on. Well, we hey. do, we, we, do have, going, yeah. we do have horses and dogs in Ireland from, mm -hmm. you know, dogs from the Neolithic mm -hmm. and, and horses from uh, middle 
middle, late Bronze Age. So after the Ice Age, we did have horses beforehand. Um, but um, but whether they're a continuation on and then interbred with whatever came in or was imported at various stages um, should uh, should should be thrown up in light of this project, coupled coupled with uh, my other project that I work on. So I mean, judging um, judging by the late Iron Age in Ireland of horsebuds, um, certainly those that were found at Dramana um, and other parts um, across Ireland, you're dealing with animals that are at least cob sized. Anywhere between fourteen three to fifteen, uh, fifteen two hands. Uh, so we're and again a lot of this has probably been imported in through uh, via Roman Britain, um, because wherever Romans go, they tend to breed the stock up. I, their ideal, granted, their ideal military horse is fourteen two, because you can slip on and off of it very easily. Um, but um, you've also got other bigger animals. Um, that are doing the rounds at that stage. Mm. Um, I think the DNA is going to be fascinating of this because it's going to give us an idea, especially if we're animals like the the Irish hobby, the Galloway, the Manx pony, um, the Cushion Doll pony, the Achill pony, the Roscommon pony, all of these animals that are now bred out and extinct that go way back, it's going to give us an idea of exactly when we're starting to see them appearing on the timeline and how far back or not, as the case may be. So it's all to play for. And you talked about the, the, the war ponies there. I, I'm sure I read or heard somewhere it's <laughs> probably wrong. Whenever it starts a question like that, it probably is. But I'm, I'd love to be corrected that, especially the great army, but I don't know many armies at that time, they would tend to ride horses to battle, but then they would get yeah. off the horses and get and, off and fight. Is, is that correct? That's right. Absolutely. Yep. Um, that's pretty much as well how the Germanic tribes uh, were doing it. Um, uh, and Bella Gallico, um, that's exactly what Caesar says, that they gallop up to the scene, they hop off, they fight like yeah. hell, and then they call a taxi, basically okay. to get them back. Um, and uh, that's pretty much how they roll. Um, and of course, Caesar isn't impressed by the Germanic animals at all, calls them small and ugly. Um, and uh, But yeah, that is very much, in the, uh, you know, unlike, you know, the Scandinavians are are keeping to that methodology of, of battle. Uh, because, again, if you've spent all that time training up an animal, uh, you don't want it to get bumped off, um, you know, until you want to have a horse fight or you want to sacrifice it or whatever. Um, as long as it's functional, it's, it's like having a small tank, really, isn't it? Yes. I mean, there's evidence on the continent for you know as early as the ninth century by Charlemagne. Um, in fact, probably his grandfather training war horses, um, mm. beginning to. Um, there's evidence even going back to Alexander the Great of 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 at least some cavalry units as we would understand them. But they because they're fast and they can go around um and they're they're um nimble. So they're very handy in that sense. Um, it's one of the things that kind of smashed up the the hoplite, which needed to march as a as a unit as a phalanx, is horses could outflank them. Um, but 
there and it happens eventually. I mean, by the time 1066, the Bayou Tapestry shows William the Conqueror's men are all on horseback and they're fighting against English um, with their shield walls. Um, although there are at least some mounted people on both sides. So the amount of dependence on forces for battle. But in Ireland, that seems to come later. Again, by the time the Normans show up, they're they're on big war horses. Um, it's one of the, the things that gives them an advantage. And uh, yeah, that's that. I mean, you're the scope when people talk about the Viking Age and medieval period. I think we sometimes forget that we're still talking about hundreds of years where the huge amount of developments that happen, particularly in societies that are under stress or in warfare. You see how quickly you know tanks and warplanes develop. And I imagine you know we don't we sh we shouldn't have this monolithic view of hunting dogs or or fighting dogs or horses and you know uh, you know uh, horses for riding or horses into battle. These you know what the situation is in uh, eight hundred and the situation in eleven hundred is going to be. As, as you're suggesting there, is 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 going to be uh, pretty different. And as someone I think once said, and again I, I I can't quote it, is that you know, ten years ago in the past is as long as ten years ago from now sort of thing. We've got to get that in. We're talking about really deep, long time here. So um, I think that's what you know. We should all, as listeners and people who are watching this on YouTube as well, that know that this is this is a rather grand, epic project and. It's it's there's going to be probably more questions than answers by the end of it, but hopefully you're going to be starting to see trends developing and and connections beginning. But this is very much the the start of probably an entirely new field, really, of research. Is the way that I, I've I've understood it, and I you know I think I think here what I probably like to ask just to sort of bring it back to the sort of um, the specific sites and specific archaeology and specific historical sources. What sites can you give um, myself and, and the viewers and the listeners maybe just a couple of highlights in terms of assemblages or sites that you're looking at that you're hoping to maybe compare to each other or or contrast? Um, so I don't, if Ruth wants to start and then and and, and then and Mary and Marina can 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 join in. Um, well, I suppose like in Dublin, there's there's a few different you know urban real urban sites around. Uh, Dublin Castle and not too far away from Dublin Castle, so on the River Poddle, but also within the city walls. And then we have outside in the hinterlands, a good like 25, 20 kilometres away. Um, and then we have down up in County Mead, so up outside again, up in the hinterlands, and then straight across to um, Roscommon, the Ranella site, which is a monastic and, you know, monastic medieval burial site with lots of humans but there's lots of dogs too um which i have to find um in their boxes that are stored by iac one of our main supporters in terms of the commercial sectors and um then we have like the odd dog coming up in county wicklow and county kildare again countryside hinterland and then in cork city then as well so that's another urban site and then we have um I have to view the collections now up in the National Museums of Northern Ireland and they're collaborating with us as well. So they also have wolves. So uh, that, that should be interesting to, to get dated as well to see when they're coming up. But they have large dog types as well. Um, and so so the scope of the project kind of it widened a bit to try and get a good storyline, basically, and to see trends through time. So we're roughly 
and there's some earlier outliers and some later outliers, but it's roughly from 700 AD to 1400 AD. So it does encompass a large swatch of time, but it should give us enough to um, see through changes and the beginnings of maybe trends of dogs being established and horse types being established through time and, and to see the imports coming in. So so with with England, then we have York City itself. So that's another urban, important urban Viking Age site, which is a good comparison, to, of course, to Dublin. Um, and then we have outside of that in, in Ipswich down south and, and southwest and so on. So so west west Stowe is the other one, West Stowe. Um, so so yeah, so they they have large dogs as well there. But there's all there's also the small dogs, and again, it's like where where are they coming from? Are they local? Are they not local? And so on. Excuse me, one minute. <laughs> so that, um, that's Mary, Mary, Mary then next then. <laughs> well, and um, one of the things that would be so interesting is at what point did dogs that were already in Ireland and um, then dogs that presumably came in from places like Scandinavia do they do they start to breed mm. and because that'll tell us a lot about the humans interacting so do we very quickly see dogs that are crossbred between the two or does that hold up for a while and then it'll be really fun to find this out and because that's there's no way to find this out without doing this testing mm. you know we the sources aren't going to bother to tell us about it but it will give us a lot of, of indication about human interactions over time yeah and yeah i think yeah i i yeah I, you you guys keep on coming back to that that yeah we're, we're we're getting this this long period of time in which the i mean the the I think, correct me if i'm wrong but it's, it's quite a, a seven year uh project is that is that how long we're sort of looking at at the moment yeah it's it's, it's mainly driven by the 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 genomics that takes so long and because we have to phase samples going out in batches according to the funding so the the isotopic uh, analysis and the ancient dna costs are covered by the respective labs uh, darren grock in durham university and brian hayden in um university of brunswick in canada are doing the stable isotopes and then pontius in the crick uh Institute in 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 London is doing the the ancient DNA. So with the crowdfunder, it was to raise funds towards radiocarbon dating, which is being covered by Chrono up in Belfast. Um, so it's the one element we don't have funding for. And obviously, I will be applying for other funding next year to try and bump up the numbers. But again, we we'll have kind of a phased kind of time when samples go out. And then my links with Scandinavia as well to broaden the project out of interest to see what's going on. Um, so, yeah, and, and of course, we have the outreach. The outreach is very important in terms of public, social media, but also the secondary school kids we're working with, the secondary schools where we have the kennel packs. So they get to sponsor their own dog and they follow their dog. There's a unique password protected web page on, on the website for each school. So we have five places and three of them are taken up already. 
Um, but they get to follow then their dog that they name and sponsor all the way through. So they get behind the scenes and explanations and Zoom talks and so on, you know, question and answer chats. So it's, you know, inspiring the next generation of archaeologists and scientists to, to come up and realize that research is just asking questions. That's that's all it is. It's not some thing in an ivory tower. It's just asking questions and trying to find the answers to those questions. So, um, but yeah, the outreach element is multi-leveled and multi-layered, I suppose, throughout the, the project from, from day one. Yes, and I'll bring people back. You know, go go to Viking Dublin uh, Jogs website and their social media, and it's it's a brilliant website. There's lots of information on it, um, and there's more to be added. So you know, all of the podcasts that you guys have previously done, and all the outreach you've done is all listed there, just a click away. So yeah, definitely get to the website, and we'll we'll all give out the information for that um, at the end. But I suppose yeah, the question you're talking there about questions to ask. I suppose for a bit of fun, you have to take this too seriously. So, so for each of you, again, within think of it in terms of this sort of five, 10 years of, of this of this project, what question is more important for you to, to ask and one that you think you might get into the foothills of or or just a question that you want to ask of of the data? So I'll, I'll again we'll start with Ruth and Mary and then Rena and just yeah so a question that you kind of want to ask just for you know because it interests you because that's kind of why we do it we're just fascinated by by history and archaeology and yeah within the scope of this project what what how you might be able to bring that question to the the data that you've got and are, and continue to gather oh god that's not a hard question at all <laughs> <laughs> we've gone off script here people this is why i'm being naughty um i suppose i like as, as somebody's had dogs all her life now not not at the moment but i will in due time be getting more dogs um i i find the the human dog bond and the caring element quite important and how that traces through time with different types of societies and different types of uh, living centers basically how that relationship changes or doesn't change um through time per location is, is quite important and to see then the adaptations in the bones themselves. So from a pure zooarchaeology zoo point of view, do the shapes and sizes change according to roles through time? Are they actually adapted and bred up for certain roles? Um, and, and are those roles primarily associated with urban centres as opposed to countryside? So, yeah, so it's that relationship between the hinterland and the, the urban sites where I'm like going, hmm, what's the differences or if, if there's any common trends and so on. All right. OK, well, good, good luck. Good luck with that one. So, Mary, now it's your, your, your turn to ask us. Yeah. So, yeah, urban, and, urban and rural, totally. Yeah. Um, one thing that's intersects a bit with some other research I'm doing, um, we've got other bits of art history. But specifically, what about things like tapestry and embroidery? Because that's one of the few places where we get work, we can almost certainly say a woman did this. And given the way that women are especially associated, for example, with the small lap dogs, is that going to be borne out or not? And is, you know, what can things like um, the overhaul of the tapestries, which I need to go back and look at, um, some of the things in Osaburg that seem to have been made locally as opposed to imported. 
be really interesting to find some of that out. If we can connect women specifically with some of it. No, yeah, no, that sounds, yeah, I mean, this is the other thing. So people should, when they listen to, to, to Mary's answer there, just to generally just Google some of these things, these tapestries that you may have seen or may have not seen, or just you need to remind yourself because you've looked at different aspects of them. You'll go into them again and look for the dogs and look for the horses. And uh, yeah, and yeah, you'll, I mean, some of them are, some of them are great. We might ask a question just, just after, after we get Rena's answer for this about depictions in, in, in art, but um, just for, for Rena now, what is what is your then such a slightly fun question that you'd you'd like to begin to get answered in in, in this project? Um, I think I view the Viking period as being the the middle ground between um, obviously the high medieval period, um, which we've got lots of documentation for and lots of artifacts for, quotation wise. And um, obviously, the end of the Iron Age and early, early medieval, if you get what I mean. Um, I'm interested in the breeds. Well, not Britain, they're not breeds at that stage. Obviously, they're types. I'm interested in imports, exports. Where does Ireland stand in the middle of all this? Um, so I think from the, especially from the DNA and trade and material culture, those are my main interests, I think, um, as to see where we're going with, um, what breeds were actually left here on Ireland, what were we bringing in, what were we sending out, um, and how does that affect the uh, animals that we were left with. Obviously, there's a lot of mystery about the the Connemara pony, the the, the Kerry bog, etc. But there's, as as I just said, there's so many extinct uh, types that are. Um, we are are they extinct? That's another question. You know, are they simply just bred out a bit? So, yeah, that's what I'm interested in. And again, equally, yeah, absolutely fascinating. I mean, you know, you've always got me for talking about trade and movements and things, but um, yeah, the fact is that you know things that we think might be extinct, but they're you know they're still kind of they're still kind of amongst us. The way we all find out now, we've got a few percent of of Neanderthal uh, a DNA in us. I think does anything ever really kind of die out? And that's, I suppose that's that's a bigger question. But um, I suppose now, before we just talk about some of the fundraising details, just to 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 to, to finish off. Maybe then I suppose it's again another fun question, but based, I have actually included this in the notes, um, artistic de depictions or so maybe just your favourite one or or, or to, to each of you, one that you feel is either accurate or one that you think they're trying to tell something, you know, almost uh, spiritual or figurative about the horse or the wolf or the or the dog. So uh, I just want to go around. I don't know if we want to start with, with Rena just on that one. Um, I have to confess, after being there last year, you've got several absolutely brilliant carvings um, in, uh, what do you call it, in Govan. And I think the Meagle Stones as well, because they are showing pacing animals. Um, and you've, there's a lot of questions about that, obviously, because the, the Viking ponies were moving at a halt and that fifth piece and yet these are Pictish animals are these uh viking ponies are they indigenous are they a wee mixture of them all um so i love the naturalism of them um and as the big sarcophagus is absolutely you're right it's an absolute brilliant it's really good <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. Or the leg, the head kind of loses it a wee bit, but the legs, just yeah. just the legs, the legs are great. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's fancy. And so, um, and, now, and now Mary, I don't know if there's either a poem or, or a depiction in, in, in stone carving or, or metal work. Is, is, there, is there one thing that's really sort of, you know, redolent of, of, redolent of, of you know, why you're interested, why we should be interested in in, 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 in the horse or, or the wolf or, or, or the dog? Uh, I mean, there's so many. And the, the Book of Kells is always glorious. <laughs> and it's nice because it predates most of the Viking Age. Um, it's very stylized in some places, but at the same time, you've got those very accurate cats. Um, you've got that horse that the monk is riding that is really sort of stepping out. So I'd be curious of Rena about that. I already said tapestries and women's work I'm really interested in. Um, you know, there's uh, there's so much. Um, it's clear that artists, the same artists, could depict very realistic and very stylized creatures at will. Um and, you know, the Bayou Tapestry not only has the main story, but it's got all kinds of beasties, real and imaginary, um, in those top and bottom margins. Uh, there's at least one fight. Well, there's a, clearly a hunting scene, but there's also, I think it's a bear baiting that's much smaller down in one of the margins. So there's all kinds of interesting bits and pieces. And it's sometimes we can really date these things, which I think helps us look at some of the changes i mean they can't depict a hunting scene if people weren't hunting with animals you know <laughs> now, so so basically um for for you know i think you guys are in trouble so you got to add bears to 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 birds to dogs to wolves uh, and horses so <laughs> only only if dogs are involved with the bear baiting but that's a, that would have been that's an english depiction mm-hmm. you know they're there yeah no that, i mean i think i mean is that that's the sense then that we get i think that you know and the same way that the outdoor worlds is much more part of people's lives and the weather is much more part of people's lives than the animals would have been you're living with them you know they're they're in your house they're in the other part other side of your longhouse or whatever so it's very much a world where you know the sights and sounds and smells of animals and the weather and nature are kind of in your face you know 24 hours so you know that's broken you're talking you guys they're talking about the art that yeah it's it's good that why are there so many animals on on on, on all these especially the, the government stones or snakes everywhere and you just don't think of it as something that you've ever seen really particularly in the wild and so britain particularly in ireland with snakes, for example, but um, you know, I think, I think, I think that's it. The, the the answers you're giving here, and we'll go on to Ruth now. But her answer for that is that, yeah, they're they're you know they're 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 in the songs, they're in the poetry, and they're they're in the art. So I'll go to now Ruth, so we can get on to uh, we can talk about Ruth's answer, and then and then the fundraiser, and we we can we can finish on that. I'll let, I'll let you all escape for the well, evening. Well, well, Mary kind of covered mine in the book of Kells with the art. <laughs> So yeah, like and even the birds in in the book of Kells, like um, there are some depictions that are eagle-like and so on. So you know you have to wonder what the association is, and they do draw what they see. Uh, obviously, it's stylized, but you know they they have to be there. Um, but there's some wonderful depictions in the book of Kells, like uh, in terms of dogs and stuff. So yeah, basically whatever Mary said, I agree with that. So. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it's great, you know, as a, as, a, as a Scot, we can all talk about uh, a Scottish book. But I'll move on. No. Um... <laughs> <laughs> oh. so the, I mean, the Book of Kells has so much religious iconography. Yeah. Snakes were very mm-hmm. much a Christian symbol. Obviously, the, the eagle is a symbol of, of John the Evangelist. Um, one of the Matthew, Matthew was the lion, but a lot of times the lion, which they clearly didn't have in Ireland, looked very cat-like. And one of my favorites, one of the earliest pages, um, you know, where they're doing the synopsis and the 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 um, for, um, things in the in the Gospels that you will find the same um, in across different ones, and they've got all four of the evangelist symbols across the top. So you've got Matthew, who's an angel, and Mark, who's the um, the winged lion. But the lion is leaning over and licking Mark in the face, who is rolling his eyes and trying to lean away from it. And that's people who knew cats better than they knew lions. Uh, <laughs> okay. but it, yeah. But I love that even with the, you know, what are clearly meant to be very religious iconography, you get those little bits of humor and, you know, why we love cats. Indeed, and why we love cats, dogs, and and, and horses—they're just. I was just uh, a, a friend. Uh, a friend has a horse, and I was just managing to to feed a horse just the other week. And they're such magnificent, large animals, <laughs> and the must—I mean, so they're impressive now. And I know, you know, I've seen plenty of horses, but you can imagine if you've not seen that many horses, or an army appears across the horizon on a lot of horses with you know, snarling slaughter hounds or <laughs> as we call them, that you're gonna be pretty, pretty, pretty scared um by, by these. But anyway, I could talk about that. I, I'm sure you, you could talk about it forever. Luke will eventually just press stop. So um I'd like you just now to just tell us about how we can help you um achieve all these wonderful aims and answer some of these questions with with your fundraiser. Um, I suppose spreading the word as much as possible. It's 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 all about spreading the word and spreading the in- interest. And the more backers we have, the more we can do. Um, and if that's at over phased different uh, times, then then that's fine. Um, we are beginning to targeting. I'm beginning to target uh, commercial businesses now. From now on. Um, for the next month and a half to try and bump up the phase one or well we're going into phase two now um and then next year i'll apply for some you know traditional funding avenues uh writing grant re- proposals and so on but i i think the reason i went with the crowd funder was to um, I suppose capture the imagination of people and involve them directly with the project. There's there's many ways of following along and and getting involved, and also because of you know everybody loves dogs. It's a dog human story, and then everybody loves horses, so it's a dog human horse story, and now some birds as well. <laughs> and <laughs> but but yeah, it, it's it's all about. I suppose the outreach and and trying to get people involved in in cutting edge scientific uh, and archaeological research, um, and you know if if we get so far we get so far and then we can try again different avenues and so on. But you know it's it's about spreading the word for the crowdfunder at the moment for phase one, um, and see see where we go with that. Um, and 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 for that people can they can just 
flat out they can just do a simple donation or they can buy some amazing merchandise which people can yeah, find there's, there's, your there's, we, we do have a buy me a coffee thing on the on the website where you can do a direct donation and not get anything back um but all donations all all backers will be named on the backer site on the backer webpage but um yeah there's various you know from t-shirts to to, to to mugs which i got my coffee mug it's a nice size it fills two french presses in there so it's a good size coffee mug um that arrived this morning for me um, but yeah, there's hoodies as well. Like I got my hoodie for winter time working at the desk over all these bones, dogs bones and horse bones. Um, but yeah, there's there's so many different things there that you know it goes from you know 10, 12 quid upwards um, to to exclusive you know Zoom talks and previews of results and so on and so forth. So um, there's there's you know for all all ages, young and old. And and everybody who loves dogs, so yeah, I'd, I'd I'd recommend everybody gets on there checks it out for even if it's a present for something later in the year, mm. you can buy it now, and you've done a good deed. You've helped pay for radiocarbon dates that will help answer some of these amazing questions that we've been talking about today. And it's just you know you get a cool thing as well. The, the I've I've seen people taking photographs of their t-shirts and various things, and it looks really high quality, and uh, it's a really cool design uh, as well. As you can see on the mug and elsewhere, so um, definitely I commend you to to this project and, and in terms of um, just reading more about it. But and if you can, giving some something some money towards it because it's it's good people doing really cool work, and you can become become a part of it. So um, and, I'm very much aware. Sorry, yes, I'll, sorry. I'll, I'll let, I'll let and you. And I'd go. like to formally thank our sponsors so far. So all the backers are there on the backer page, individual names. But also we've uh, had several companies and government organisations. So um, Dublin City Council, National Monument Service, um, the Apple Farm down in Tipperary. Um, you know, so we're, we're accepting donations from, from all sorts. And then from the commercial archaeological sector, we've IAC Archaeology. And also thank you to Red River Archaeology for their donation. But also, you know, thank you for for having us on the podcast, which, you know, it's great to actually reach different audiences and, and, and get the messages across and just the interest to follow along. So we'll be posting what we call bite-sized treats or blog posts. So that goes out generally weekly, um, but they might, you know, it'll time with when we're getting results. So there'll be certain things given out before publication and so on, just to bring people along with the, with the story and the work and so on and so forth. So. So follow along on the website is the best thing and the social media. Fantastic. All right, cool. Well, thank you, Ruth. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Rena. Um, yeah, I've I've had a great I've had a great time. Um, and I know that our listeners and our viewers are gonna have a great time. As I say, get to the website. Uh, even if you don't have the, the money to donate, just you know, find out more about the project and you know, share, share the share the, the podcast and share, you know, follow them on social media and share their posts. That that's helping as well. So mm -hmm. yeah. um see they're all lovely people and they're all yeah, they'll they'll answer questions, I'm sure, if you ask them on social media and things like that as well. So yeah, please just you know become part of this project by by helping out. So um thank you very much guys. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks very much. Thank, thank you. you. Well, 
I think we said in the intro that that would be amazing and it was I know everyone's been who was part of that session was saying how much fun it was it was just like chatting about archaeology around the coffee tables sort of thing you know I, I and that's what it felt like I forgot as I tend to do these things that we were recording a podcast and I was just I was just chatting with 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 pals was did that come across to to use ace producer Luke? you could see that you were um like a kid in a candy shop your little eyes were lighting up at the talk of vikings and everything it was it was great but no but it is it is true it was for me it was one of the more um fascinating podcasts that we've done it's a great cause it's um it's really interesting it's from my i suppose point of view it's interesting to see how uh this kind of outreach can get built and that from a tweet this whole project evolves. Something like that is incredible for me to see from obviously a, a digital marketing background. Um, it, it's great to see those kinds of things happening. Uh, but it's really good. I, I really think our listeners and our viewers are going to enjoy Joy this one as much as we did in making it because it was absolutely incredible to hear them talk. And yeah, you, um, I, I, I yeah. hear you talk. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna add that as a note there. No, um, <laughs> but I think that was it. It was just, it, I think what we're trying to do with this is. You know, we're we're working with projects, we're working with charities, we're working commercial, non-commercial. You know, we don't see commercial people as rivals. We just see we're all we're all doing it because we all love archaeology and we're trying to get that feeling across as much as the information in these podcasts. So if we can help out a project like this, especially with their their amazing fundraising campaigns. So it's, you know, you can give money, as I say, or you can buy this really cool merchandise as well. Um, their website will, will, will provide a, a link to search for Viking Dublin Dogs and you'll find their 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 social media and you'll find their website and you'll be able to donate on that. So, you know, I think I, you know, I, you know, I will be buying something from the merchandise because it says Vikings on it and it looks cool. So. <laughs> but um yeah, um, you know, I'll, I'll um I'll I'll you know, I just I, I just think it's it's something that you know you feel really proud about if you're doing the shindig uh here that you're 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 actually helping people on a day-to-day basis with their archaeological projects um so yeah um i just i'll i'll just leave it to 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 look to end it off because look always remembers all the technical things that i forget <laughs> to say yeah exactly so like if you are enjoying these please let us know hit us up on twitter hit us up on facebook on instagram on youtube leave us a comment below uh, we'd love to hear from you. This is basically a podcast to get stories like this out there. If you have any story ideas or any people you'd like to see interviewed, why not let us know? Drop us a DM, drop us a comment. Uh, we're always open to suggestions and always open to ideas. Uh, if you did like the podcast and you're new here, hit subscribe, hit follow, share it to a friend. Um, let us reach a wider audience because this is about outreach. This is about getting stories out there, as I said. So why not do that? Hit subscribe, hit follow, leave us a review. This has been The Shindig. My name is Luke Barry. And my name is Tom Horn. And yeah, we'll hopefully see you soon.